0: Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. This is the evening service of Sunday, the 1st of November, 2015, entitled Giant Killers. And the Bible reading is taken from 2 Samuel, chapter 21, verses 15 to 22. Here's Pastor David Moore. Uh, we are in 2 Samuel today, 2 Samuel chapter 21, at uh, 2 Samuel chapter 21, and, uh, you know, I'm sure if I was to say to you, who killed the giant, your immediate answer would be whom? David. Now, let me ask you another question. Who killed the other giants? Now, there's a question, isn't it? You know, sometimes we think it's just David and Goliath, but there are other giants in Scripture that were slain. And I want you to see this in 2 Samuel chapter 21. And verse 15, 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 15. And uh, we're going to begin reading. We'll read down to the uh, conclusion of the chapter. 2 Samuel chapter 21, beginning in verse 15. It says, Moreover, the Philistines had yet war again with Israel. And David went down and his servants with him and fought against the Philistines. And David waxed faint. And Ishbabinob, which was of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose spear weighed three hundred shekels of brass and weight, he being girded with a new sword, thought to have slain David. But Abishai, the son of Shariah, succored him, and smote the Philistine, and killed him. Then the men of David swore unto him, saying, Thou shalt go no more out with us to battle that thou quench not the light of Israel. And it came to pass after this that there was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sabichiai, the Hushathite, slew Saf, which was of the sons of the giant. And there was again a battle in Gob with the Philistines where Elhanan, the son of Jaar Aragim, a Bethlehemite, slew the brother of Goliath the Gittite, the staff of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was yet a battle in Gath, where was a man of great stature that had on every hand six fingers and on every foot six toes, four and twenty in number. And he also was born to the giant. And when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, the brother of David, slew him. These four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. We trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word this afternoon. Now every one of us, I think without exception, knows that David killed Goliath. That ancient battle in the valley of Elah, is legendary stuff in fact so much so that when we think of someone winning who's an underdog today we speak about a david versus goliath uh, battle and uh you know we we talk about someone being a goliath of a man so the name goliath has just really absorbed into our culture and and even people who are not familiar with the bible understand that the name Goliath is associated with largeness, with strength, and so on. In fact, in our home city in Belfast, there are two huge cranes that uh, that are, are a landmark in the city. You see them pretty much from everywhere you go, and uh, they're the ha- they were at one point, I think they still are, the heaviest load-bearing cranes in the world, and uh, one of them is called Samson, and the other one is called Goliath. And, uh, and so every kid growing up in Belfast knows that those two cranes are named Goliath and Samson. So we associate David with Goliath, and that battle in Elah was well, well rehearsed before, before us, and we know it very, very well. But how many of us can really tell or have told of ish bin the son of Goliath, or Saf or Goliath's brother, or the giant with six fingers and six uh, toes on each hand and foot? You know, the, the valley. The battles of David's mighty men are not recounted to the same degree as the battle with Goliath, and yet they are nonetheless impressive. Now, David, at this point in his life, is in what we call the twilight years of his days. Uh, physically, he is well past his best. He's beyond his peak, and uh, this is a very difficult time of life, uh, especially for, for men. It's hard for you to, know, to let go of your youth. Uh, I know that uh, a few years ago, I finally decided to stop playing football. Uh, I think I was 51 at the time, and I went out and played with uh, some of the young men in our church and realized it was over. It was a sad day in my life when I realized that they were all far faster and fitter than me and I couldn't possibly keep up with them. And so it's, you know, it's, it's difficult to, to let go of your youth and to realize that your body is weaker than it once was, and that your mind isn't as sharp as it used to be, and that your legs run a little bit slower than they did before. But old age catches up on us all. And not to be a figure of gloom and doom, but let me say this, save the Lord should come all of us, even those of you who are in the in the prime of life, all of us are on a march to the grave. Now, David, the, like most men, was reluctant uh, to let go of his youth. He found it difficult to hang up his boots, as it were. Age was creeping up on him, and he was coming toward the end of his reign. And as he's coming to this point, the Philistines launch an attack upon his kingdom. Now, what the king lacked in body... He more than made up for in spirit. And so he leads his troops into the battlefield one more time. And he comes face to face with yet another giant, a son of Goliath, by the name of Ish-bib-e-ban-ob. Now, Ishbi bin ob is the first in a series of giant men, of Philistine champions who are challenging the status quo in ancient Israel and who are defeated in the chapter which we just read. And so we want to ask tonight, especially on this anniversary Sunday, what are the lessons that we may learn from these victories that are recorded here in 2 Samuel 21? Well, this afternoon I want to uh, consider two simple things from this tract of Scripture. First of all, we're going to make a few observations and then we're going to make some applications, okay? So let's uh, let's think about that with the help of the Lord, and let's just look at the text and make some observations. Now, notice in verse 15, we're introduced again to the Philistines. Moreover, the Philistines had yet war again with Israel. Who are the Philistines? Well, they came to Israel. They came to the uh, to Israel from Crete around the 12th century BC. Their descendants today are those whom we call the Palestinians. So the Palestinians are the Philistines of old. And uh, then, as now, the Philistines were the avowed enemies of Israel. Of course, we know that Goliath was a Philistine. He came from the city or the town of Gath. But here we are toward the end of David's life, not now dealing with him as a 17 or 15-year-old youth in, the, in his early days, but here he is at the end of his days, or heading toward the end of his days, and his kingdom is subject to this attack. And we read that David went down in verse 15 and his servants with him and fought against the Philistines and David waxed faint. Now you have to admire his spirit, don't you? I mean, he's in his 60s. I mean, if I'm, you know, I'm 53, I shouldn't admit that, but I'm 53, and the thought of me going into battle is just like, you know, it's unthinkable at this point in my life. I'd be killed, I'm sure, on the first day, uh, you know, but here he is in his 60s, and he's leading the charge. Against the Philistine army that's been led out by this great champion uh, Ishbosheth, and he's not as fit as he once was. Notice it says at the end of that verse, he waxed faint. You know, the strain of life and of this battle was taking its toll, and the phrase literally means that it was that his his strength flew away. It flew away. That's what the phrase wax faint means. It means to fly away. His strength was leaving him. You know, Moses said this in Psalm 90. He says, the days of our years are threescore years and ten. That's seven days. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, that's eight eh? yet is their strength labor and sorrow for it is soon cut off and we fly away. So when you're losing your strength, and I hate to say this to the older folks, you're you're, flying, you're in the process of flying away, okay? That's what's happening. Your strength is flying away. It's leaving you. Now, as David was in this battle, he looks up, and there stands this giant of a man, ish be ob in verse 16. And ish be ben which was of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose spear weighed 300 shekels of brass and weight, he, being girded with a new sword, thought to have slain David. Now, this man has an issue. He has a, has a beef. That's what we'd say in England, isn't it? He has a beef with Goliath. He has a, or he has a beef with David, rather. He has a, a bone to pick. You see, all of his life, Eshbibonob has been growing up as an orphan. And when he was told about his father's death, Whose name do you think came into the conversation? David, the champion of Israel. David, who's now the king of Israel. So all of his life Ishbebenob is hearing about this man David this king who slaughtered his his uh, father on the valley of Elah all those years uh, before so this Ishbebenob is evidently also a giant that's indicated by the description of his weaponry a spear that weighs 300 shekels of brass and weight. you know he's a big man he's a giant of a man and when we read of giants in Scripture, you know, we need to get away from the fairy tale idea of giants. You know, the Jack and the Beanstalk type figure. You know, that's, that's not what giants in the Bible, uh, that's not how they're represented, okay? Uh, because, you know, what, they're, what you're looking at here is really just a, a person of, of great stature, someone who was a physically imposing warrior. And these were the same men, if you remember when, when the ten, when the twelve spies were sent into Canaan, when they went in there, they came back and described the stature of the inhabitants and how they were larger men. And uh, these are the same men that we're looking at here. And evidently, they dwarfed the average man. Now, if you think this is mythology, if you think this is just legendary, if you think this is just a tale, Well, think again. You know, 10 years ago, two shards were found, two pieces of pottery were found in the area of Gath and uh, dating from the time of David. And each one of them bore the name Goliath. So we have archaeological evidence that Goliath was a real figure and that he did live in Gath. So Goliath was a real man. Ishbi Benob was a real man. Saf was a real man. And these other figures that we're speaking of here are real men. Now, notice a little detail in verse 16. It says of this Ishbi Benob that he had a new sword. Now, I have a saying, and if you come to our church, not that I'm encouraging you to come every Sunday, but if you should come, you might hear me say something like this occasionally. Not one drop of ink is wasted in the word of God. Every detail is important. Everything Scripture has recorded for us has some significance. So when the Bible says he has a new sword, you know, we're not just being given a tidbit for no purpose. We're not just being given something to, you know, make us think, well, that's interesting. You know, we're not to sit back and just think, well, he must have had a lovely, a lovely weapon to admire. You know, uh, one of my favorite movies, in fact, probably my favorite movie, is the movie Braveheart. And uh, I, I took a tour with some men one time. We went and toured around uh, Stirling in Scotland and uh, looked around the places where William Wallace would have been back in that time of the reign of Edward I. And of course, William Wallace was known for his big sword, he had this huge sword. And they had this replica sword that you could buy. I forget how much it was. It was like 200 pounds or something. But, you know, it's a massive big sword, about six feet and tall, you know, and he would have swung it over his head. And it was very impressive. And you would imagine William Wallace must have been a pretty big fellow to swing a sword like that. Well, this guy has a new sword, but it's not there to be admired by tourists or even admired by Bible readers. The reason you're told that he has a new sword is to indicate to you that he had just been promoted in the Philistine army. When you were promoted, you were given a new sword. Now think about this. Here's a fellow who is recently being promoted as an officer in the Philistine army. He's leading his men into war. And what do you want to do on your first day at your new job? You want to create an impression, right? You want to show them that you were worth hiring. Okay, so he's going into battle first day on the job, as it were, with his new sword. And uh, he's going for David. He's got this issue with David. He wants to get even for his father, but he also wants to make his mark as a warrior of, of the Philistine army. So he has something to prove. And he sees King David in the middle of the battle, and David's 60-some years old, and you can imagine him. He's huffing, and he's puffing, and he's, you know, he's you know, probably that bit where they shouted, Charge! You know, Charge! He was probably only in there about 50 meters when he was already doubled over and wishing he hadn't ran. Too fast. And, and he's and he's huffing and he's puffing. And he looks up, and all of a sudden, this big Ish guy is standing right over him with his new sword drawn, ready to get even for Goliath. And seeing that David was about to be killed, Abishai, who is Joab's brother and David's nephew, moves in. And he helps David to kill Abishbinov. Look at verse 17. But Abishai, the son of Soriah, succored him. He helped him and smote the Philistine and killed him. Now here's the thing. When David was young, he would not have required the help of Abishai to fall the giant. When David was young, he was able, even without the armor of King Saul, to take Goliath on single-handedly in the name of the Lord and secure that famous victory that you and I know so much about. But now he, he's an older man and his strength isn't what it was and his stamina isn't what it was. Guess what? He needs a younger man to help him finish the job. Now the first time around... God used David's skill with a sling to fall Goliath. But the second time around, he uses Abishai's strength and Abishai's military prowess to slay the giant. Now, this is what I want you to see, and this is what I'm coming to. You know, as I, as I observe the church today in England, I see two kinds of people. In every congregation, there are two kinds of people. There are those who have faithfully served the Lord all their days, who still maintain the spirit to be involved, but don't always have the stamina they once enjoyed. In other words, it's getting tougher and tougher for them physically. Even sometimes they come out to two services in a day. It's getting tougher and tougher for some of the older people in the congregation. Then there's the younger generation who need to do as Obicius did, and uh, these, as these, uh, as these other men in our text did. Uh, they need to step up to the mark, and they need to help in the battle so that the elders may step back a little bit. Now, with the bishop dead and the battle won, David's men were greatly concerned that the king, at this point in his life, was unnecessarily risking his life. And so they encouraged him to retire from battle. They said, listen, you know, if you keep this up, we're going to lose you. You shall no more go out with us to battle, that thy quench not the light of Israel. What are they telling him? They're saying, listen, it's time that you put your feet up a little bit. It's time that you retired somewhat. Uh, We don't want to lose you. So we're going to protect you from this point on and you're no longer going to be our leader in the battlefield. Now, from there on, we, we read that you know, they, they make David make, essentially make David uh, give an oath to that effect. And so he puts his feet up. And as you read down the text, we read of three more giants, all of whom are related to Goliath, all of whom were killed by David's men. There was Saph, who was killed by Sabakai the Hushathite in verse 18, and Goliath's brother, who was killed by Elhanan. And finally, and I love this guy in verses 20 to 21, we read of a giant who has six fingers on every hand and six toes on every foot. And you think about it, he's probably more fearful than the others, not just because of his size, but also because of these extra uh, extremities, these physical abnormalities. You know, look, understand something. They were not doing as we do today. They were not bombing people from 30,000 feet. This was hand-to-hand combat. And if you're going into hand-to-hand combat, it's nice if it's five fingers against five fingers instead of five fingers against six fingers. So you can imagine how difficult it is to wrestle a fellow with six fingers. It would have been a kind of a a hard battle. But anyway, off they go, and this is also a put to the sword. You know, Matthew Henry said this, the most powerful enemies are often reserved for the final conflict. Now, what does all of this teach us? Well, first of all, it teaches us that no one is indispensable. No one is indispensable. You see, God will continue to raise up leaders and he will continue to, to replace previous generations with the generation that's coming from behind. That's the way it works. You know, someday your pastor's not going to be here. Someday I'm not going to be in Stoke-on-Trent. And somebody else is going to have to come along and take up the lead and take up the charge and, and get into the battle. So no one is indispensable. Secondly, we all need to learn our limitations as well as our strengths. So there are things that you, when you get older, you physically realize, I cannot do that anymore. You know, uh, when I was younger, I used to play a lot of squash. And if you know anything about the game of squash, there's a lot of arm movement. And as a consequence of multiple games of squash, I have a very bad right shoulder. So much so that sometimes it freezes, And I lose the entire strength in this arm and also the strength in this arm. So not so long ago, I was at the swimming pool with my uh, grandkids. And uh, that happened to me as we were getting out of the pool. And I couldn't raise my body up out of the swimming pool. So I kind of just had to roll on the side like a beached wheel, really. It wasn't very good. It wasn't very, uh, you know, you can imagine the scene. People were looking at me like, what's wrong with that guy? He's just rolling about at the side of the pool. But, you know, you have to realize your limitations sometimes. Because I just physically wasn't able to do that. And so, you know, there's things as you get older that we struggle with, like David did, and we need the helping hand of others in order to advance the kingdom of God. Now, when David first fought Goliath, he did so out of necessity. There was no one else around who was willing to take up the challenge. You remember that? Goliath was so full of himself that he actually crossed the valley right to the foothills of the Israelite army, stood beneath them and challenged them to send out someone to fight him, and no one would come forward. But David went out on his own and fought Goliath. But now we see one man after another doing much the same thing. And so we see that when we step out in faith, Our victories encourage others to cast cast aside their fears and to follow us. Now, verse 22, David is accredited with these victories. These four were born to the giant in Goth, and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. David never actually killed any of these men in person. But it was his example, his influence, and his guidance that encouraged the others in the battle. Now, let's make the application. The first thing I want to say, say to you is this. We see that throughout our lives, the giants of our souls just keep on coming. You know, the devil, the devil never lets off. Have you ever discovered that? The devil never quits. You know what I always say? It's the only good thing I can say about the devil. The devil never quits. Christians quit. Preachers quit. Deacons quit. Sunday school teachers quit. But the devil never quits. He never lets up. And many of us feel like, you know, once we've dispensed with one Goliath in our lives, once we've got over one big hurdle, once we've had one big victory passed, well, we're home and dry. It's never going. We're never going to be bothered again. Wrong there's another giant coming down the line we are unprepared for the ish and the safs who are waiting for us here's what pink said a w pink he said there is no furlough there's no rest in the fight of fear you know you read at the temptation of jesus and you know we read about that temptation there in the wilderness after his 40 days of fasting And we read it almost like it's an isolated incident. You know, the devil came along. He tempts Jesus to eat, to turn the stones into bread and so on and so forth. And you think, well, he went away and that's the end of it. And Jesus was left alone. Not so. Luke said this. When the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him. Listen carefully what Luke writes. For a season. Just for a little while. In other words, the devil was coming back. You know, later on toward the end of his life, Jesus said this, Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world, that's Satan, cometh, and he he findeth nothing in me. You see that? Right? Three and a half years later, the devil is still there. They're still, still tempting him. At the Last Supper, we read the supper being ended, the devil having now put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. You see, in the life of Jesus, the giants kept coming. The giants kept coming. There was one wave after another. Listen to me. You gotta understand this tonight. The giants are going to keep coming. And that being the case, you need to put on the armor of God, be prepared for the battle and be ready to defend yourself against the besetting of your soul by the enemy and his temptations. Here's the other thing I want you to notice here in terms of application. Notice that all of these giants were all from the same family. According to verse 22, they were all born of the giant in Gath. That is, they're all related to him. Three of them were his sons. One was his brother. It represents an ancient family. This is a family that goes back to the time that Israelites first spied the land. It represents an ungodly family. None of these members of this family believed in the Lord God. None of them believed in the God of Israel. Every one of them defied the God of heaven. It represents a selfish family. They all seek their own. They're each one contending sometimes against one another. And it represents a numerous, mighty, and destructive family. If you were to look back in, in chapter 21 and verse 21, uh, it says of, uh, let, me, let me get that right. Must be 1 Samuel, I guess it's 1 Samuel 21. It says that uh, they, 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 had, they had cities and strongholds and they defied the armies of the living God. And sometimes they terrify them by their imposing appearance. Whenever I was a young fella and I was in school, we used to play rugby. And uh, we played my wife's school. My wife's school was a rougher school than our school. Our school was a little bit more posh than her school. You can tell that by looking at us, can't you, right? But anyway, I'm joking. Uh, But but we were playing them at rugby one time, and they had this fellow who used to play on their rugby team, and they called him Gusher. I remember correctly, something like that, Gusher or Nasher or something. Anyway, we were just a young fellas, you know, 13, 14 years of age, Typical height of boys, 13, 14 years of age. But this fellow was like a Goliath of his time. He was a monster of a teenager. In fact, we were quite sure that he must have been the, the, the teacher in the other school that, you know, that had snuck, snuck onto the team that was playing us. But here's what our, here's what our, our rugby coach said this. He says, this fellow has ginger hair. He says, you can't miss him. He says, he's, he's head and shoulders above all the other uh, teammates. He says, guys, when he gets the ball, just let him score. Just let him score. Don't get in his way. He was imposing because of his stature. Well, these guys were the same way. And we have a similar family, just as ancient, just as terrible, that threatens us. Now, what is this giant family today? It's the family of sins and vices and temptations of all kinds that beset us daily. Ancient in that it goes back to the Garden of Eden. Ungodly in that it denies the rule of Christ in our lives. Selfish in that it's always seeking to appease the flesh. And mighty and destructive in that it ultimately brings about our death and demise. The soul that sinneth, it shall, what? Die. Our giants, too, come under various titles and various names. We find them listed in Matthew 15. For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. We find it in Galatians 5 now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulance, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. We find it in Colossians chapter 3, where it talks about fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, covetousness, idolatry, those things that that we're to put off, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication, lying, and so on. These are our giants. These are every bit as threatening and every bit as intimidating, every bit as fearsome as anything that Goliath or Ishbosheth or Saf or any of these other characters represented. But we must face them and we must defeat them. Now David learned that we could not, that he could not face every giant on his own and in his own strength, and neither can we. So he saw that he needed to rely on the help of others, and so must we. If we're to defeat the giants, we must rely on the Lord Jesus to be our strength. Here's something else that David learned, and we must learn. If you're going to defeat the giant, you'll have to remember your old sword. You know, ish had a new sword. But every Christian has an old sword, a sword that is quick. That is powerful, that is sharper than any new sword, any two edged sword, than anything the devil ever had. And speaking, of course, of the Word of God, when the Lord Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, how did he respond every single time? He said, It is written. He brought him back to the Bible. You know, we govern our lives by this book. You know, we say, well, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Here's the fact of the matter. If God commands it, then by his grace I obey it. If God warns about it, then with his help I look out for it to avoid it. We bring our old sword, not our new sword, into the battle. We mustn't take the sword and forget the shield. Ephesians 6, 18 says, praying always with all prayer and supplications in the Spirit, which is is taking the shield of faith. And then I want you to see this. We must see the necessity of fellowship. Look in, in 2 Samuel again, chapter 21 and verse 22. It says, The giants fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. You know, there are some Christians. And they feel like they can get through this life without other Christians. I got news for you. You will not survive the Christian life on your own. You need each other. You folks who are members of this church, you need each other more than you actually realize perhaps. You need to support each other. You need to pray for each other. You need to encourage each other. You know, there are some people think, well, I don't need the fellowship of God's people. Uh, You know what? When you step outside the fellowship of God's people, here's what you do. You lose the protection that God has built into the local church. There is no place for lone rangers in the Lord's army. The church exists to strengthen, to encourage to bolster those who believe in order to fight the battle. Do you realize that when a Christian discards the fellowship of the other believers, he puts himself right in the face of the giant? Do you realize that? You know, if you go back in your Bible and you were to look in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we'll not take the time to look there, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul raises the issue of a man who has committed some immoral act, perhaps with his stepmother or his mother-in-law or or something of that nature. And he's entered into some kind of adulterous relationship and the church there is gossiping about it. And they're rather relishing the juicy details of this scandal. And Paul rebukes them for that. And he tells them that the way in which they should be dealing with this is that they should be having a meeting in which they decide to uh, put that fellow outside the church, to dismiss him from the fellowship of the church and, and he, says that, he says that they do that, 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 his, uh, that uh, let me just go there and read it actually because I'm going to misquote it um, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 he says that they are to, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of, of the Lord Jesus Christ now you see what happens there when Paul says you put him outside of the church you're delivering him You're exposing him to Satan, to the giant. So one of the ways in which you shield yourself from the giant is by working together. One of the ways in which you shield yourself from the giant is by maintaining your fellowship with the local uh, church. Here was a fellow who had fallen into sin. Here was a fellow who had fallen into adultery. uh, adultery, uh, But he was put out of the church and put in the face of destruction. The church... Through its ministry, keeps us right. It's the pillar of ground, the pillar and ground of truth, and it's here and only here in the church that you're challenged, that you're taught, that you're rebuked, that you're encouraged, and that you're motivated. Only in the church are Christians held accountable one to another. Out of it, we hobble along out of it. Like David, we are weak in the flesh and we're all the more endangered by those giants that just keep on coming. You know what? It may be there's a giant in your life today. It may well be there's something you're battling with, something that's bearing down upon you something that's really gripping your soul, something that frightens you by its size, by its extremities. Maybe there's a giant in your life that appears strong, overwhelming, overbearing, intimidating, and well-armed. And in Christ, you have what it takes to bring that big fellow down. Once you slay a giant, here's what you do. You lift up a standard for other people the same way that David did when he slew Goliath. You say to other people, I have defeated this giant by God's grace. And you can defeat your giant by God's grace. David versus Goliath. Abishai versus ish bin versus Saf. Elhanan versus Goliath's brother. Jonathan versus the six-fingered giant. The battle of the little guy against the big guy. The big team against the little team. Big industry versus the underdog. One man standing against the crowd. Do you get the picture? The little remnant, which is what we are, versus the big secular society, which is what is outside those doors. The creationist, who is oftentimes painted as an intellectual pygmy against the evolutionist. The theist against the atheist. It seems like we're up against it. The church versus the government. There are many, many issues. And so few people willing or courageous enough to take them on. Now, here's my challenge, and there's lots of young people here tonight. Here's my challenge to you young people Are you willing to take on the giants? Are you willing to stand in the gap? Are you willing to step out onto the battlefield and get behind your pastor? 25 years he's been wielding the sword. I can tell you now there's days when he's tired. You know what he needs? He needs an Abishai. He needs a Jonathan. He needs a Sabachai. He needs someone who will come in and rise up to the challenge. And no matter how large, no matter how foreboding, no matter how scary it seems, we need someone, frankly, who will pull out the old sword of the Spirit and take on the new sword, whether it comes in the form of Islam or atheism or secularism or whatever you want to call it, and defend the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ this country needs a new generation of giant killers. It needs Whitfields. It needs Wesley's. It needs Knoxes. It needs Spurgeon's. It needs Wilbur forces for a new generation. It needs Hudson Taylors. It needs those who, by first fighting for their own lives and their own purity and their own walk with God, go on to save a nation from certain defeat. I wonder this afternoon, would you be one of them? I wonder, would you this afternoon say, Pastor David, I'm going to take out that old sword and face the giants and be all that I can be to salvage this united kingdom and this neighborhood from the grip of sin and idolatry and that for Jesus' sake. May God bless these thoughts to your heart today.